Amen. What wonderful words to sing, to be reminded of, and to praise the Lord with this morning. It's actually quite fitting in light of the study we've been going through for the past two weeks. As we've been looking at this journey, if you will, from fear to faith. Recognizing as the writer of Hebrews says that we are without God, without Christ, without hope. Without hope because we are enslaved to the fear of death all our lives. The term gospel is well known. Even if you haven't grown up in church, you probably know the term and you have some idea of what the term means. At its simplest, most basic definition, it means good news. And the term existed long before the writers of the New Testament appropriated it, rightly so, In the Gospels that they wrote, those first four, it's really more than that. It's all of the Bible that proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ. And there's a reason that the term gospel, even though it existed before it became used by the biblical writers, that it, it had a meaning. There's a reason that it's come to have an almost exclusive meaning or reference. And it's because the realization... The greatest realization, the greatest example of the gospel of, of the term gospel of good news is Jesus Christ. It's found in Jesus Christ. He's the greatest gospel, the greatest good news that was ever announced. Everything else pales in comparison. It pales in comparison to his life, to the message of his coming, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And his promised return to rule and to reign, all of which we've sung about this morning. The victory over sin and death, the casting out of all fear, the deliverance that comes from loving and trusting him and turning and repenting from your sin is the greatest news this world has ever or will ever hear. And this is what makes it particularly troublesome when people attempt to revise, to update, or to otherwise improve the gospel. It's really astonishing, although it's so commonplace, maybe it shouldn't be, that so many who claim to be Christians and claim to be believers and disciples of Jesus Christ try and have tried to modify the gospel message that has been given to us in the pages of the Bible. Now, such attempts always have the appearance of being well-meaning, They're usually motivated by a desire to make the gospel more relevant and acceptable to a particular age or culture. But aspects of the Bible that are considered unimportant, unacceptable, or unbelievable to a particular people or time or society are de-emphasized. They're ignored, sometimes outright denied. The result is that we end up with versions of so-called Christianity that have no talk of sin or of atonement, or of a resurrection, of judgment, of heaven or hell. We even have some versions of so-called Christianity that don't even talk about God. In similar fashion, some try to make the gospel apply primarily to the issues of the day. So instead of forgiveness of sins, we have meaning and purpose to your life. Fulfillment of your life. That's what the gospel is about. Or instead of holiness, we hear 
about environmental responsibility. Instead of divine judgment, we have the demand for social justice. Instead of God, we have spirituality. That's not to say we should never talk about such things, but when the things that matter to us and to our culture are made the criteria for determining the gospel we proclaim, then we have engaged in the greatest foolishness imaginable. When explaining and persuading cross the line to amending and editing the gospel, then we are no longer proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have become purveyors of a different, a strange gospel. Well, if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, you may be wondering, what in the world does this have to do with the story of David and Goliath? Well, if you'll stick with us just a little bit this morning, I think, I believe, you'll see that it actually has a great deal to do with the story of David and Goliath. So with that in mind, before turning in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17, I want to call to mind something that may already be in your mind in light of our scripture reading from Isaiah this morning. But I want you to remember the first sentence of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. It's there that we read the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. When Jesus is introduced in that first sentence of the New Testament as Jesus Christ, the son of David, it should be clear that the story of David is part of the indispensable background to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The foundation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, has its roots, has its foundation in those much earlier days when God for the first time chose and anointed a king for himself, as he did in 1 Samuel 16, because it anticipates the great king who will rule in eternity in righteousness. So when we recognize this, then we can see that the most important thing for us as we understand and study this exciting story of David and Goliath, that the excitement for us is that it is connected to the gospel of Jesus through the son of David. It is part of preparing us for that great gospel message. And so it's here in our third week, looking at the story, we see why we must not change the gospel. For us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we learn it by example. You can go and turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Made it all the way down to verse 31 in this story. I'm sure people have looked at you strange if you say, yeah, we've been studying the story of David and Goliath. We're on week three. We haven't even gotten to David and Goliath. But we understand the importance of not changing the gospel by looking at what I'm going to call the gospel of David, the good news that David brought to Israel and to Saul that day. The good news that David brought to Saul and to Israel was, again, around 1000 B.C. there in the Valley of Elah. We've reached the point in our story where David, the young shepherd boy who had come to the Valley of Elah on errand from his father to check up on his brothers and bring provisions for them to see how they were doing, That upon his arrival, he saw and heard a challenge. I mean, first off, he was surprised. He found out that the Israelites were not actually at war with the Philistines. They were cowering in fear. But he arrived just in time to hear a challenge from the Philistine terrorist, Goliath. And he witnessed the fear and the dread among the Israelite troops, including his own brothers. 
Well, this young shepherd boy responded to this challenge with words that no one had dared utter up to this point, that showed no fear, rather it showed outrage. In verse 26, we looked at this last week, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should mock, make fun of, deride the armies of the living God? Despite his brother's disdain for this apparently presumptuous bravado on his part, word spread about his response. And it wasn't long before the report reached Saul. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. We're standing in the tent of Saul. As David arrives, having received word that the king wants to speak with you. Now, before we get to David's opening words in verse 32, you have to put yourself in Saul's sandals. You've heard that someone has finally shown backbone. Forty days, forty days of terror, one of your men is finally ready to challenge the Philistine scourge. Hope is on the horizon. Can you imagine a little bit of the excitement Saul had waiting for David to arrive at his tent? Here's someone who is not afraid. Forget the fact that I'm king and I shouldn't be afraid. At least we have someone who's not afraid. But what shows up at your tent door in verse 32? A scraggly young boy, too young to even be part of your forces. This is the absolute last thing Saul expected to see when he heard that deliverance and salvation from Goliath might be at hand. Nothing could have been further from his mind than this scrawny young boy standing in front of him. David did not look at all like he was supposed to. He did not look like a deliverer or a savior, certainly not the deliverer Israel needed with Goliath in the Valley of Elah. You know, as I contemplate that, I can't help but be reminded of another who arrived with a message of hope and deliverance and salvation who did not look like he should. Prophet Isaiah put it this way, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We did not esteem him. What a wonderful reminder that the gospel does not have to look like what the world wants it to look like. It doesn't have to look like what we want it to look like. So just because we are uncomfortable with the gospel doesn't mean we should change it because it is still the gospel. We return to our own unimpressive deliverer in 1 Samuel 17. And if you've read a little bit, you remember that the end of 1 Samuel 16 describes David serving Saul. But for a number of reasons, those verses in 14 through 23 of chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, I think they're a parenthetical that describes David's later ministry to Saul. There's a bunch of reasons why. I won't go into them this morning. You'll just have to take my word for it. I do not believe that Saul, as of yet, knew who David was. This was, I believe, the very first time that Saul and David met. It was in the door of that tent that morning. And David, upon arrival, he recognized the urgency of the matter. He, doesn't, he does away a bit with the decorum when you address a king. He jumps right into talking. He's also a young boy. That's kind of what they do. And the message David has for Saul in verse 32 is, 
from Saul's perspective, from our perspective, absolutely ridiculous. It's absurd. In fact, if the situation were not so dire, if the fear of death were not so palpable in the valley, it would have even been comical. Now again, for a little bit of background, there's a lot that the narrator doesn't say and could have said explicitly. But if you take your time and you've read through 1 Samuel, there's still a lot that's communicated. For example, we've already been reminded of Saul's failure that it's his inactivity that has brought us to this point, that he was chosen as king to deal specifically with the Philistine situation, situations like this. He was handpicked for this purpose, and he had failed. Following chapter 16, which again, I hope you've been able to do a bit of your homework and read through 1 Samuel up to this point by now. If you haven't, it's not too late. We still have one more week. But in light of chapter 16, we're also aware of something Saul wasn't, the rest of the Israelites weren't. We're aware of a secret meeting that took place in Bethlehem a short time earlier of David's special status. Saul, of course, had no idea about this. But what we are presented with here is the failed king unknowingly meeting the king-elect in the person of this scrawny youth too young to even join the army, the most unexpected of saviors. But notice, again, how David took charge of this meeting. In those opening words, David proclaimed the gospel, the good news that day to Saul, the good news that they needed to hear. This is, of course, not the gospel of Jesus Christ that he proclaimed, but if you listen, if you observe carefully, I think you will begin to hear and notice gospel features found in his words that anticipate, that prepare us for the greater gospel and a greater deliverer. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him, that is of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. Again, to grasp the preposterous nature of these words of David is really to see something of the offense of the gospel of Jesus. This is ridiculous what he is saying. David's gospel has at least two outrageous, ridiculous statements or claims. First, let no human heart, including yours, Saul, fail on account of Goliath. Faced with the Philistines, faced with this Goliath, this monster, do not be afraid. Now that's nonsense, humanly speaking, with human eyes. If we're judging by human eyes, Goliath embodied terror. His very presence meant death and fear. Faced with Goliath, there are many sensible things that could be said, like run for your life, go and find a place to hide, but let no one be afraid, let no man's heart fail. That is one of, if not the most ridiculous things David could have said, anyone could have said to Saul in those circumstances. And again, isn't this a bit like the gospel we do know? Consider your great enemy. Think of death. Think of your death. Of sin. Your sin. Maybe you're thinking sin's plural. And Satan's claim on you without the gospel. And yet the gospel of Jesus Christ says, do not be afraid. Even though you have no hope of escaping it. There's nothing humanly you can do to escape 
this great terror that hangs over you, this fear of death and what it means. And yet the gospel of Jesus says, do not be afraid. In light of what we're faced with, we should be terrified, but the gospel of Jesus Christ has come. And the second thing David says provides the reason why no man's heart need tremble at Goliath's threats. But again, this is even more ridiculous. I will fight him for you. Right. This again must have sounded completely absurd to Saul. Here's this small youth, too young to even leave his home to come and join the army, offering to go fight where everybody else is too weak, too afraid, too scared. Saul, who was Israel's biggest and best, remember he was head and shoulders above every other man in Israel, would not even consider taking on this Philistine giant. Who is this kid? Is he just stupid? Is he incredibly audacious or what? You know, one of the privileges we have in studying something like this, a luxury that Saul did not have, is to reflect on some of the subtle nuances of David's words that morning. For starters, the expression David used for fear, that phrase, that idiom he used is heart failure. Let no man's heart fail. We still use that type of expression today, right? You just gave me a heart attack. But if we remember carefully, again, all you got to do is go one chapter earlier, God himself indicated that a false evaluation of God God indicated and provided us with an example of another situation in which a false evaluation was made. False evaluation was made based upon man's size and stature. And if you remember in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it arose from a failure to see according to the heart. It was heart failure. God doesn't judge as man sees. We're reminded of that this morning in our reading from Isaiah. We look for a judge who does not judge with his eyes, with what his eyes see. Why? Because he judges with the heart and the mind of the Lord. We might also reflect on the fact that the fear of Goliath arises entirely from seeing Goliath, that is, with the eyes. But ask, what would Goliath look like if we could see him according to God's heart, from God's perspective? If we could see him as God sees him? What would Goliath look like then? Fear of Goliath is altogether reasonable from man's perspective, but it is still a failure of the heart because it doesn't seek to perceive him as God sees him. There's a second subtlety worth noting in David's speech here, his statement to Saul. Notice how he titles himself, his self-designation, if you will. Your servant. Does this sound a little bit familiar? You remember Goliath had derided the Israelites for being nothing more than what? Saul's servants in verse 8. He made fun of them because of it. David now uses the same word, but he gladly accepted the role of Saul's servant. I am here as your servant. I'm the servant of you. I'm the servant of all of Israel. What for the Philistine was a demeaning insult to be a servant was David's It was a role that David joyfully embraced. David was proposed to serve Saul and all of Israel by fighting their terrible enemy. 
Again, this reminds me of another who came, who humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant. He came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Well, this is the gospel of David, the good news David brought that day. One, do not be afraid. Secondly, I will fight. Now, it sounds preposterous to us, but that was the good news. That was the gospel he preached that day. Don't be afraid. I will fight. But there is another echo in these words that these words should bring to mind. These words are reminiscent of an even earlier gospel message, a good news message, which we might call the gospel of Moses. It was proclaimed on another terrifying day, right at the beginning of Israel's history. They had just left Egypt about 500 years earlier, and they were trapped. They were trapped between the sea and the armies of Pharaoh, who said, wait a second, we just let them go, go and get them. All hope was lost. Humanly speaking, they were going to be drugged back into slavery. slavery. Any who resisted were going to be slaughtered. That was it. It was drowning by the sea or drowning by the, or death by the sword. You pick your... Pick your choice. Do you remember what happened that day? The Egyptian army advancing toward them, the Israelites trapped. And Moses proclaimed, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Faced with Goliath, young David was speaking like Moses. In similarly terrifying circumstances, this was Moses' gospel. Don't be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. It's a very similar message. In case you need any more convincing that the gospel of Moses and the gospel of David are patterns which anticipate the gospel of Jesus Christ, let me ask, do you remember the words that were announced to lonely shepherds on a hillside one night in Bethlehem? They arrived and they said, what? What? Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Do not be afraid. You will be saved from all your enemies. This time by one wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Preposterous. Ridiculous. Absurd. With human eyes, these promises of deliverance whether it be from the Red Sea and the Egyptian army, whether it be from a Philistine giant, whether it be from all enemies, including death, by a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger, are absurd. And so it helps us to understand why people find it hard to take the gospel of Jesus Christ seriously. Why it is that we sometimes feel the need to try and alter the gospel. Saul certainly found it hard to take David's gospel proclamation seriously. Look at verse 33. Then Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth, implying it's been quite a while that he's been training to fight. Saul could see what anyone could see. David was no match for the Philistine giant. The odds were completely against him. If you want to get rich, go bet on David and hope he wins. Because no one thought he could that day. It was a youth against one who had been a man of war from his youth. That David should propose to fight a seasoned warrior of Goliath's experience was to Saul's minds, his brother's mind, 
and to any reasonable mind, again, ridiculous and simply not possible. And so Saul's unbelief, it it makes sense, again, from human eyes, but it was limited by what he saw. It focused on the doubtful ability of the youth before him to do what he suggested. And so Saul says, you are not able. Well, David corrects Saul's disbelief, begins to correct Saul's disbelief in verses 34 through 36. And he does it by recounting his past experiences. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up again against me, I seized him by the beard, struck him, and killed him. Your servant is killed, but the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. David's words tell the story of his past exploits as a deliverer, as a redeemer. David had delivered many a lamb from the clutches of deadly danger. So David's youth was not quite as empty as Saul might have at first surmised. The uncircumcised Philistine who had threatened the armies of the living God would be, according to David, as the wild beast who threatened the sheep under his care. David finishes that explanation, and you don't see it here because the text just continues on, but but there's a pause. It's time for Saul to respond. So now what do you have to say, Saul? Well, Saul says nothing. Perhaps he was still trying to be reasonable in his mind. Wild beast may be one thing he's thinking in his mind, young man, but that fully armed monster out there in the valley, that's another story altogether. Saving sheep is one thing. War, that's entirely different. The silence was broken by David. As if reading Saul's mind and whatever objections he might have, maybe Saul, the concern, the objection the questioning look on Saul's face. Because David explained the meaning of his gospel, the meaning of the promise in direct terms in verse 37. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. In other words, David's earlier words there in 36 through 37 were not a testimony to his own experience and to his own abilities, but to God's. Behind the delivering hand of David has been the delivering hand of the Lord. Just as Moses had proclaimed, watch as the Lord delivers you. All you have to do is be still. And the Lord who delivered from the beast is able to deliver from this fearful Philistine. Notice as well, this is the first time in this chapter that God's name has been used. And it's David who has to use it. The Lord, or in Hebrew, Yahweh. It's the name by which God had made himself and his power known to his people, Israel. The fear that had gripped Saul's heart and all the Israelites' hearts reflected their failure to trust Yahweh. David saw everything differently because he believed that Yahweh delivers. Saul and Israel had forgotten this fact. David's gospel finally produces these words from Saul, and Saul said to David in the end of verse 37, Go, the Lord be with you. Now, if you're reading this story for the first time, perhaps here's where you expect David to, well, go running from the tent to the front line, ready to engage in battle. The problem is Saul still couldn't accept all of David's gospel without changing some of it, without adding to it. So there's a slight delay. 
verses 38 and 39. Saul's failure to grasp David's gospel was, is immediately apparent here because he tries to do what? To equip the lad with his own armor and weapons. And again, this is a, has to be a somewhat comical scene, watching him try these things on. One of the things I used to do, and I enjoy watching my kids do, is they, they try to wear my shoes around the house, especially when they're really little. And they, they go walking around wanting to, wanting to be like dad. And, and it's, it's funny. It's, it's endearing, and it's funny because they don't fit. They trip over themselves. They fall over themselves. That's what would have been going on here is he's trying on these things. David, Saul, who's head and shoulders above everyone. David, who's still a boy, still growing. And so he tries to dress David. But it's not just the silliness of the size of the armor that's the issue. Notice what he tries to do. He tries to make David look like Goliath. Did you see that? He tries to equip him like Goliath. Goliath has a helmet of bronze. Here's my helmet of bronze. He has a coat of mail and scales of armor. Why don't you put on my coat of mail? He has a sword. Here's my sword. And so he begins to try and dress him like Goliath. But David would not be a king like Saul. He would not be like be a king who is like all the other nations around him. So his battle, Saul's battle garb could not be used by him. Notice in verse 39, he tried in vain to go, but he couldn't even walk in them because he had never worn this stuff before. He never tested them. Saul's way could not be David's way. Goliath's way certainly couldn't be David's way. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So what does David do at the end of verse 39 and verse 40? He took them off. He reached, took up his staff in his hand. He went and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Well, that's the point at which we must leave the story until next week. Sorry. But before concluding, I want us to return to where we started. Can you see this morning the danger and the foolishness of changing the message of the gospel? In the case of David, it would have been foolish to say that Israel's need of the moment was something other than the deliverance from the Philistine threat. Or that danger could be dealt with by someone or something other than David himself. Think how bizarre it would have been if David had walked into Saul's tent that morning and started talking about something other than deliverance from Goliath. Hey, Saul, have you been wondering how you can have a fulfilled life? Been wondering how you can add to all these riches and wealth and power that you have? Talking about missing the elephant in the room. And yet it's comparable to Christian preachers or teachers who want to major on something other than salvation from sin and death and Satan in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Imagine again for a moment David enters Saul's tent and rather than preaching this gospel spoke to Saul about anything else. The gospel of Jesus Christ like the gospel of David addresses the real need with the only solution. However, there is a big difference. Unlike the gospel of David which was a temporary solution at a moment in time, the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's eternal solution for our eternal need.
It conquers the fear of death and sin forever. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're in need of hearing this gospel, this good news. You are enslaved to sin. You are under the curse of death, the sentence of hell and the judgment of God. I'm not going to soften it. That's what awaits you without the hope of this gospel of Jesus Christ. But the good news, what makes it the gospel, is that there is deliverance for you in Jesus Christ through the repentance of your sin and looking to Jesus as your redeemer and your deliverer. But for those that claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ, the question I have for you this morning is, what gospel are you proclaiming to the world? What gospel are you preaching? There's really two ways in which you preach the gospel. You know this. You teach others, you preach to them about what you believe through either your words or through your actions. Is the way that you're living proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ unadulterated, unchanged as scripture presents him? Have you surrendered your life to God's wants and desires and what he's asked you to do in scripture? Have you joyfully made yourself a servant of Jesus Christ? Are you perhaps instead living for yourself? If you are, you are preaching a different gospel. Do you believe that Jesus has conquered sin and death? Then are you showing it by your desire to put sin and to death in your life? Or are you letting it run rampant, undealt with, preaching a different gospel to a watching world? And your words, what are you saying? What are you preaching? What are you teaching? Do you speak in a way that communicates trust in God? Do you really believe that God is the God who delivers, that he is Yahweh? Or do you grumble and complain? Do you respond with joy in the midst of suffering, knowing you have a deliverer, or do you preach fear and despair with your words? Paul had this to say in 1 Corinthians about the ministry of preaching the gospel and the foolishness that it sounds like. 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. In other words, you change it, you void it. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel. The gospel is as presented in Scripture. Nothing that I can add to or take away from it will help it. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. For where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for this gospel reminder, this reminder of the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ, the hope that we have, the eternal hope, the eternal solution for our eternal need. 
Would we rejoice in that? Would we remember that? And most importantly, would we preach and proclaim that? Father, that is for our greatest good and your greatest glory. Help us to leave here this morning with an earnest, growing desire to rightly, truthfully, faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, I do pray for any in this room this morning who have not experienced the gospel, who do not know experientially why it is good news, that you would so burden their hearts this morning that they cannot leave this place without calling upon you as Redeemer and Savior to know you as Yahweh. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing together.